Welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode number five. I'd like to start this show by thanking those who have given me such positive and encouraging feedback so early in the life of this podcast. We've certainly got a growing audience. And I'd love to hear from you, your thoughts about the podcast, the guests I interview, and the way I go about it. I'm always looking to make improvements to the show and to my own performance. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'd have noticed that we've got some new intro music for this episode. I got some feedback from a couple of ladies who are fans of the show, but hate the music. Let me know what you thought of the new piece. Even better, if you didn't like it, send me some music you'd like me to consider, but remember, it has to be original and it has to be royalty free. In the Team Guru podcast, we talk to interesting people about the work they do and what they've learned along the way. Today's guest is someone I've known for quite a long time. In fact, Jason Maloney was one of the very first and most hospitable friends I made when I spent a few years living in Washington, D.C., starting back in 2001. Jason is a crisis communication specialist. Whether you've been hacked and had your customer's credit card details stolen, spilled a few million gallons of oil in the ocean, found that your product is poisoning your customers, or you're a celebrity on the wrong side of a sex tape, Jason is the man you call. He's represented companies such as Microsoft, Hooters and Bayer, sportsmen such as Roger Clemens, and the countries of Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and a whole bunch more. When companies, individuals, or entire nations find themselves in a situation that has the potential to become a public relations nightmare, they call Jason Maloney and his team at Levick. When I entered Jason's circle of friends way back then, I realized there was quite a bit of intrigue about the type of work he did. And what better way to get to the bottom of an intriguing man in an intriguing industry than to have him on the show and ask him a whole heap of questions. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason Maloney, a man who makes a living from being good in a crisis. Jason Maloney, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. My pleasure. Jason, I've read a little bit about what you do online, and it seems that you're the guy Harvey Specter would go to if he found himself in trouble. Well, crisis management a, a discipline that's been around for many, many years, but increasingly, uh, how you discuss difficult situations is, is critical. And having a crisis manager by your side is just as important as having a good lawyer by your side. And, and we've had the great privilege at Levick of working with globally uh, some of the most important issues of our day, environmental disasters, transportation accidents, celebrity mishaps, uh, corporate takeovers. Uh, you know, this, I saw today here in the U.S. and globally the stock market plunged today. All manner of people will probably be uh, calling folks like me in the coming days and weeks. 
So what is it that you actually do? How do you define your work as a crisis management company? Sure. Well, often it's it's bringing structure to a very difficult situation. We'll convene in a client's uh, office uh, shortly after we're, we're called in, and it's often called the war room. And that's where the C-suite, top lawyers, human resources, communications are all sitting around a table devising a strategy for how to overcome a very difficult uh, situation. And I'll, I'll just take, let me take, for example, uh, a, a large environmental disaster that, that occurred not long ago, the BP oil spill. Uh, we did not represent BP, but did represent a, a, another party at the center of the, the disaster. Uh, and, you know, there's always a regulatory component. What do we say to the government? We're certainly sure, shortly going to have conversations with representatives from government agencies. What do we say to shareholders? Uh, that's always an important consideration. But ultimately, it's how do we speak to our customers? How do we speak to the people who, who work for us? How do we speak to the people who buy our products? Uh, what do we say to them in order to preserve our brand, preserve trust, and uh, act in a way they expect and deserve? And it does not change whether you are a celebrity with a fan following or you are a company that makes a product that is harmful and needs to be removed from the market. Very often, swift action, uh, leadership, that's what people are looking for. No one cares what got you into a, a bad situation. They care what you do from the moment you found out something bad is happening. That's what they judge. That's how they judge you. And that's effectively what we are helping companies, individuals, celebrities uh, map out in the first hours of a situation, weeks and months, all the way to uh, recovery and getting back to business. How did you find yourself working in this profession? Your website says that you've got 20 years experience and you're not really that old. So you must have gotten into the <laughs> crisis game pretty early in your career. Good, good genes uh, going on 25 years. Actually, I had a, I had a brief, uh, I, I thought I wanted to be a news reporter when I, when I, when I was younger and uh, had a brief flirtation with that. And, and really, I decided I, I wanted to be on this side of the news making uh, body. I want it, it's very much being much closer to the action and helping tell stories. Uh, you know, as a reporter, you're trying to find stories and and tell them in a in an effective way. And in this way, I'm I'm not too far away. I'm I'm inside the boardroom, uh, helping companies uh, tell a story, and that's ultimately what it's about. Is being on that side of the fence a little bit more exciting? Uh, well, yeah, it's very exciting. I think people, you know, there's there's a certain um, excitement to uh, the, the chair I sit in. There's an adrenaline rush, and I think you'll find uh, a lot of people in, in my business uh, really, you know, they're the folks who love picking up their phone when it rings at 3 a.m. in the morning. It's a lot of time on planes. It's a lot of time, you know, holding hands, uh, because very often you're with somebody who's facing the end of their business, who's facing the end of their career, who's, who's really on the precipice uh, in terms of what their future is. Uh, I can remember sitting down with Michael Vick, uh, NFL quarterback, who was charged with some very serious crimes of, of cruelty to animals. And I sat there, looked at him in the eye, and I said, Michael, the, the, the way forward is to admit what happened, admit what you did, accept responsibility, because that's a key component of any crisis management situation. Um, but in this particular instance, he needed to accept responsibility. Uh, the evidence was overwhelming. Uh, and from there, you know, as soon as he did that, as soon as he accepted a penalty and whatever that meant, a fine or ultimately it meant uh, 22 months in jail, you know, for somebody with an athletic career, 
the sooner he serves that time, the sooner he's out back out doing what he does best, and that's throwing footballs and leading teams to victory. And he he did regain his uh, his place in the NFL, and 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 uh, you know is is still in the part of the NFL. Hopefully, hopes to be part of the NFL today. I think he's not quite with the team this season. So he hasn't got a team at the moment. Not at the moment, uh, but uh, you know, with the rate uh, quarterbacks go down in the preseason, you know, he may not be out of work for long. So that was a particularly hard fall for Michael Vick because he was one of the quarterbacks of the league at the time. He'd had a number of golden seasons just leading up to his legal incident, uh, and then he found himself in jail and and at the, the on the wrong side of some really ugly news reports. How does someone like that? handle it on a very personal level you must have seen people go through some pretty tough times it's it's difficult and particularly when you know the the shortcomings are uh, uh self-inflicted shall we say um and when it's your own actions that have brought you to this point you really have no one to blame but yourself uh, fortunately you have you don't have to rely on uh you know a board or you don't have employees or you don't have somebody in your company you can point the finger at. If you stand up and accept responsibility, uh, that's always the first step towards redemption. And I know this is true in America, but it's true worldwide. We're a culture that forgives, particularly celebrities. And, and I can even name umpteen number of actors who fell on hard times, uh, fell into drugs, uh, careers were derailed. And you know, with an actor or an athlete, you're only one great performance away from redemption. Uh, and if people see that you've perhaps taking steps to recover, steps to make amends to individuals. You know, that's, that's always important, an important factor in forgiveness. And I think everyone's willing to give you a second chance if you do the right thing. So in, in Vic's case, did you feel the tide of public opinion turn uh, that moment he took your advice and accepted responsibility? Well, I, I unfortunately, M Michael Vick did not uh, go with my firm. A, a, a good friend of mine uh, was hired and, and shepherded Vick through some difficult times. But but it's, it all worked out in the end. We were able to uh, acquire that gentleman's firm. So we <laughs> I can see him out. Vick, uh, yeah, we, we, we took care of it. But uh, it was a very effective strategy. My good friend Dan Rene uh, led, and, and Vick not only accepted responsibility and served his time, but he sought counsel from esteemed members of the NFL community. Tony Dungy, former coach in the NFL, African-American, was one of his close counselors. Uh, so just being seen with somebody who the NFL community saw as a good, solid individual, a wise counselor, that was helpful for Vic. Vic also leveraged his situation and, and formed a relationship with the Humane Society, a nonprofit that uh, is very concerned with animal welfare, and turned his difficult circumstance to uh, his advantage, or in fact, led his celebrity to their cause and became an advocate for, for animal welfare uh, issues. That was also a positive. And it was real and it was authentic. That was, that was really the magic that, that helped Vic get back to the point that, that he was accepted back into the NFL, not simply for his athletic ability, but for the kind of man he was. And I, and I really credit my good friend Dan Rene, uh, who's today one of my best colleagues, uh, for, for leading that charge. You say that Vic's involvement in the animal welfare organization was real and authentic. Can you understand from some people's point of view, that must be so hard to believe, I guess, because you've got a guy who was trying to recover his reputation. And for those listeners who don't know, Michael Vick was, was charged with 
getting dogs to fight against each other. And and it was it was it copped a lot of bad publicity because it's so personal to, to so many people who are lovers of animals. Can you see that from a lot of people's point of view that him joining that kind of organization was just a way for him to recover his personality? Is it really come across as authentic? Well, I, I can appreciate that. But first of all, it was not court order. That was something he did of his own volition. And look at it from the animal welfare advocate's perspective. There, you know, Michael Vick taps an audience and can reach an audience that they cannot. And, and they saw an opportunity to put him at the forefront of a new campaign to reach young people in the inner city, young people who, who, who grew up in dog, with dog fighting. And this is a, a terrible sport, that uh, a blood sport that, that occurs behind the scenes here in the U.S., uh, largely in the U.S. South. And it's not simply dogs. There's, there's cockfighting. I mean, this is, these are traditions that exist, you know, off, uh, uh, off the grid, shall we say, in communities that, you know, the Humane Society could never have hoped to reach. So, you know, I could appreciate that. It might not be seen as genuine, but the fact is uh, Vic helped them take a message to corners of the U.S. market they would never be able to get to without him. What causes a celebrity, someone with the status that Michael Vick had and, and the, the money that he made, to do something so stupid as to get involved in dogfighting, something that could be so damaging to his reputation? Well, um, that's a great question. Uh, why does, you know, why does a, an actor take illegal substances and drive 130 miles an hour on the highway in his new Ferrari? You know, why do people put nude pictures on the internet? I mean, we cannot explain certain behaviors. I can say, you know, particularly in, in athletic circles, when someone makes it to the pro ranks, uh, with them comes all manner of folks, uh, their posse, their circle, their community. Um, they, they ultimately, you know, are, are take a, a bit of a bad neighborhood from where they grew up into the, the, the NFL or major league baseball. And, and they're surrounded by folks. If, you know, if they're not smart, if they, if they are, uh, gullible, in fact, uh, they, they surround themselves with some unsavory character, not to you know, suggest that Michael Vick was in any way not responsible for, for his actions. But I do know that, you know, he, he did have. Some uh, some unsavory characters around him, and that's you know in some ways part of the part of the situation. The, right now, you know, we're entering the National Football League's new season, and uh, as part of the, right before the season, they do something called the NFL Rookie Symposium, and they bring several former athletes back to talk to all the new players, and they help them with basic life skills. These kids are now have lots, some of them have lots of money. They're 21 years old, 20 years old, you know, you know, some even younger. And they help them with financial management. They help them get their, uh, get themselves in order and understand, you know, what it means to take care of their families, but not necessarily feel beholden to uh, every cousin that comes out of the woodwork with their handout. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, effort by the league to provide some life skills to uh, young people in a very unusual situation. And part of that is surrounding yourself with, with good counselors, uh, good attorneys, good financial managers, and perhaps leaving some of those childhood friends behind. You've talked a little bit about your involvement in the, the BP oil spill um, and a little bit about Michael Vick, but tell us a little more generally about the circumstances someone finds them in or an organization finds themselves in that require your services. Sure. Uh, well, it, it really runs the gamut. We're, we do a great deal of work in cyber attacks these days because they're so prevalent 
And, you know, very often, whether you're a retailer or a hospital or a, uh, any uh, financial institution, uh, there are entities, whether they're insiders or some criminal gang in Eastern Europe, trying to get your data, trying to get uh, sensitive information, credit card data, social security numbers. So we've, we've seen a tremendous, frankly, explosion in this type of work for our, our business. And, and we're, we're brought in on that, you know, that 2 a.m. phone call when someone realizes their network's attacked. That's an extremely booming part of our business. When you get that 2 a.m. phone call, what do you do? Tell us about the process that you go through in, in helping your client in that situation. Well, uh, whether it's, it's a, a call from an attorney or a call from a CEO, um, you know, they're often very upset, they're concerned, they're, they know their, their phones are ringing off the hook and their team is overwhelmed. And so Levick provides a number of things. First of all, structure and support in the initial hours of, of any catastrophe. And good crisis management, you know, assesses a, a situation and we hope to keep things from being declared a crisis. Um, you know, a little bit of structure would, would be, okay, let me, why don't you route your fo- incoming phone calls to us, we'll handle all these media calls. We're going to create a simple holding statement and that'll buy us some time until we get some more facts. And that inevitably is extremely helpful in, in reassuring these CEOs, providing a little bit of calm until we can get our boots on the ground wherever the, the organization is. And sometimes it's, it's you know, just down the street from us. Sometimes it's halfway around the world. But we like to get into that boardroom and we like to you know, assess the situation and get a good, uh, good sense of the facts of any matter because you know, facts dictate what your next steps are. And then what do you do? I mean, I'm fascinated in, in the process as a whole. You, you've started by telling us that you buy a little bit of time and you get your client to um, help you with that initial communication so then you can investigate the facts and get a true understanding of, of what's going on. What else is going through your mind when you're approaching a, a new case? What do you want to know and, and how do you go about helping your client in the best possible way? Well, first of all, we try to learn a little bit more than they know. We get we have a tremendous research team, so we're understanding what's what's their pain, what's going on right now. Is there a product they make that's that's hurting people? Is there uh, something in their network that's been released? Uh, is somebody on the inside trying to do them harm? Uh, we do a lot of research. Uh, what's happening online? What are their who are their customers? Who who do they care about most? And that's another important aspect. Most often, part of the concern or anxiety is because a CEO thinks that, okay, you know, the New York Times is my, is my audience, or the Sydney Morning Herald is my audience, or, or, or the Independent in London is my audience. No, let's focus ourselves and understand who do we really care about. It's ultimately employees, it's customers, it's shareholders, and what messages do they need to hear right now? What information can we provide that reassure them, uh, reassure them that we have a handle on the situation, that we're taking steps necessary to fix the situation, whether it's a, a, an attack on our network, whether it's a product that we need to pull off shelves, uh, whether it's, it's something we're doing that's creating harm, whatever it is, let's understand who our audience is and not necessarily think that everybody's our community because everybody's not your community. And if you try to communicate with, with everyone, you'll end up communicating with no one. So your job is much more than just protecting the damage to the reputation of an organization or to an individual. It's protecting the people who are closest to it and and that need it the most, like, as you say, the shareholders and the employees. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's it's important to engage 
uh, a community where they are. Sometimes, uh, you know, the, the best way to engage a community is in a town hall, a live meeting where we invite folks who are perhaps affected by a, a situation to a live meeting so they can hear from our leaders, hear what they're doing. That's particularly effective in an environmental disaster. I didn't work on it, but a colleague some years ago was, uh, was working on a matter involving a uh, train derailment, uh, and some harmful chemicals were spilled near a town, uh, of course, a town who had a school and a number of lives were at risk. And the town hall was very effective so that the, the townspeople could see, hear from the leaders themselves here's what happened, here's what we're doing, this is what this product was, and here's why you should not be concerned. You can send out a statement and, you, and people can read your words in the newspaper, but if they hear you delivering it in person, uh, that's very powerful. And when that's not possible, perhaps it's a video message push, posted online, perhaps it's, it's a special interview with a trusted reporter. The ways of engaging, there's a variety of ways of engaging, but each situation demands a specific and unique strategy and that's what we that's that's the that's probably job one as soon as we land as soon as we're contacted by a client the the strat strategic formulation begins right then how do we make this situation better and who do we care about so what are the skills that you bring to the table you've been doing this a long time and you've obviously had a, an enormous amount of success with it if you're really honest and and uh, and not so humble tell us what it is that you're good at well um you know, I think it's very important to be able to read a situation. You often get, you know, when I say, when I tell somebody, tell me what's what you're what's really upsetting you. What where do you think the problem is? And it's uh, you know, it's also it's listening is extremely important. And you have to listen not just for what somebody tells you, but what they're not telling you. You know, it's not that somebody, a company that would hire us or or an entity would hire us would not tell us the whole facts. It's you got to just sort of listen selectively because people choose uh, what facts to often share and you, you know good to know what they're not saying it's good to have a number of people from a company in a room together so you get different opinions not maybe the CEO has one opinion but the general counsel has another opinion um, very important that you get consensus because if you're simply going on a hunch you know and that hunch is wrong it's not a very sound strategy but very quickly getting consensus and, and sharing with people how we've seen matters unfold in the past. I'd say probably our, uh, the greatest aspect Levick brings to the table, and, and not just me, but all of my colleagues at the firm, is you know we've been through 150, 200, 250 similar situations. No matter what it is, we can tell them, this is what's going to happen if you say this, this is what's going to happen if you say that, and this is what's going to happen if you do nothing. And inevitably, we choose a path with a client that makes sense for them. So the experience that you bring is, is a big part of your value, but you, you got that experience from somewhere and you're obviously an extremely good communicator and, and very good at influencing the people that you're talking to. What are the principles that you work by when you are trying to influence someone that you're talking to in a, in a really difficult situation? Well, it's again, starts with good listening. It starts with hearing from all sides within a company and understanding perhaps what what might be really at the heart of, of a matter. It's, you know, listening, not exactly uh, allowing yourself to get caught up in the anxiety that the client is displaying. You know, every client feels that their situation is unique and different and special. And in some respects, they are right. 
but there's some some guiding principles that always occur in, in any sort of rapidly unfolding situation. Number one, if you don't define an issue, it's going to be defined for you. You are not at the mercy of the news media. You need to shape the news media so you are creating the news. That's how you get ahead of a story. If you don't take control of social media, you know, it's going to be a storm that you're caught up in and, and doesn't blow over for days. This is an important principle. And this is something enlightening that we share with, with folks all the time. Your audience you care about is, you know, there's, there's 10% of the people who hate you. And they're, you know, they're never going to go away. Nothing you say will ever change their minds. And there's 10% of the people who love you. And it doesn't matter how you found yourself into the situation, they're always going to be in your corner. Your audience is in the middle. It's the undecideds. And it's if we focus on the undecideds, if we focus on the folks who have not made up their minds, that's the audience where we need to devote the most attention to. And that is true for a political candidate. That's true for of a celebrity. That's true of a company that makes baby food. It's not the people who hate you. It's not the people who love you. It's those undecideds who are so important. And we focus like a laser beam on that audience. And that is, is where we devote all of our energy. You said that you're, you're, you've got to help you understand your clients understand that they're not at the mercy of the media. They can set the agenda for the media and make the story. How do you do that? Well, uh, reporters have questions. Uh, and we, one of the first things we do, we do a great deal of executive media coaching and we train people to do television interviews. And, and a great lesson, and this is, this is fantastic if you ever have a chance to do a real black belt uh, media coaching class. It's so worthwhile. Your job is not to sit there and answer questions. Your job is to deliver a message. And, and overwhelmingly, it's going to be a message that is positive, that demonstrates leadership, that shows what you are doing, what actions you are taking. Uh, and, you know, reporters, by definition, are, are most interested in planes that crash. They're not interested in planes that land safely. Uh, the reporter's not out to, to you know, cover what you're doing well. They're out to, to they're, they're, they're calling you today because something has not gone right. And if you talk about what you're doing right, if you talk about what, you, what leadership you're taking, if, what safety measures you're empl employing, what training you're creating, you're talking about what new standards you're setting, that inevitably becomes the headline. Don't take the story, don't take the questions that, that come to you, deliver a message, uh, and it's a message that is positive. I always bemoan the fact, and especially our politicians, I bemoan the fact that so often they don't answer the question that was asked. They give information that they want to give anyway. You're the guy that teaches them to do that. I and others, but that is such a valuable, valuable skill. Uh, you know, Dave, it's so important. When you have an opportunity and a microphone is put in front of you, and, and if, it's, if it's a television opportunity, you're probably going to get an eight-second quote on the nightly news. Make it count. Uh, and it's not important necessarily to answer the question. Politicians do it because politicians do so many interviews, um, and they're very good at it. Uh, the best ones do it seamlessly, and it's and it's, it's not boxing. It's, it's like judo. Like they just take your, take your attack and turn it against you. But it's so important to use that opportunity to send a message because you're not going to get a lot of time on the air. And if, if they only go to you for that one quote, you want it to be about leadership. You want it to be positive. You want it to be about, you know, again, I, I use the example of for if you make a product that's not, that's not uh, doing what it should. It's got to be about safety, high standards, 
how you're looking out for customers because that's what you want the headline to be. It's uh, in some ways it's not a fair fight because the media organization gets to have the last edit. So I guess what you're saying is you give your clients the advice to, to take the bull by the horns and just deliver the message they want anyway so that they're not completely overpowered by the fact that the media organization does get the ability to edit what they say. Well, they do. And, and, and uh, very often you, I have clients who say, you know, I don't want to comment on that or I'll say no comment. No comment just sort of makes you look guilty. Overwhelmingly, unless, there's, unless we're talking to a reporter who is so cannot be trusted and, and I don't I don't you know there's very few of them that I that I find that are just you know you can't possibly deal with it's far better to be a part of that story with something positive than it is to simply have the only words you put into that article and the company said no comment or the company will not comment that's never helpful you know not engaging is rarely a good strategy better to engage with something small than to concede the entire real estate of the article to the other side reporters only want a story you know, they're not after to take down your company. They're not down to remove the CEO. They're after a story. So give them a story. And that's what we find is the most helpful. Is it fair to say that some of what you do is spin? Nope. Never use the S word. We don't, it's not out at our firm. Tell, tell me about that. It's obviously something that you're very familiar with. Uh, well, I, I think it's, it's shorthand. Some folks uh, consider to be you know, just plain common sense. You know, hitting a ball with a, with a cricket bat might seem easy, but for somebody who's never done it before, it takes practice and takes time. And what we're teaching isn't spin. It's not deftly avoiding controversy. It's often taking controversy head on and talking about what you're doing to fix the problem. Every situation is different. Uh, and there's cases, particularly involving litigation, where you can't say a great deal. And in those cases... You know, you might say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not the right person to, to add to this or it's a matter for litigation. I can't say it. You know, here's some other resources where you might be able to get some facts about this matter. But very often we are telling people to confront an issue head on and make certain the, the facts are in the public discourse. And that's not spin. That's not, there, you know, there's, there's tools and there's tactics and techniques to make certain you're a part of that story. There's ways that we engage online that are very transparent. It's making certain accurate information is found on your website. It's, it's found by the bloggers who care and follow your issue. A message is delivered to your community wherever they are, be they in a town hall or they on, be they on Facebook. That is direct and transparent engagement, and it's making certain your facts are in the public discourse. It's not, uh, you know, I, I find it to be a very serious uh, and valuable exercise. Tell us about some of the cases that you're most proud of, the work where you've had a, a really fantastic positive impact. There's many. Um, there's many. Many years ago, uh, we were part of one of the, the largest data breaches in history, and 130 million credit cards were, were stolen. And the company at the heart of the matter, a company actually called Heartland, it was not a company most people were familiar with. It was a payment processor, and they, their, their community you know, first and foremost, we understood who their community was, were 175,000 businesses that processed card transactions. And, you know, this might seem like a rather dry subject, but it was, it came, uh, came about in 2008 at a time when, uh, 2009, when people were, you know, just coming to grips with how interconnected, you know, the international financial system was. And the internet and the way we process card transactions the internet's built for, for speed. It's not built for security. 
and a large number of people, you know, globally, had their cards replaced because they were caught up in this matter. In the initial days after this attack, the CEO stood up and said, you know, we're not going to let this happen anymore. We're not going to let others be affected by this. He phoned, he and his team phoned 175,000 merchants to talk to them directly and tell them the facts of what happened. They put out statements. We put up a website. But the personal touch was incredible. He also took the malware that affected his company and handed it to his competitors and said, don't let this happen to you. He formed an organization where more uh, processors could, could share information and thereby, you know, as a result of their tragedy, all others would benefit. Uh, and he also created new standards uh, and new technology that would make the processing transactions uh, safer. End-to-end encryption, it was called. And, and taken together, it was a tremendous display of leadership. Levick won a tremendous uh, award for crisis communications campaign of the year. But, but really, all credit goes to the CEO who, who grabbed a difficult situation by the horns and, and turned disaster into success. Does that happen many times in your work where those really difficult situations can actually become an advantage and turn into some really positive outcomes for the industry? It, it, it happens enough to give you uh, a lot of hope and a lot of pride in, in the work you do. Uh, uh, years and years and years ago, before, my, before I got into the industry, there was a famous example of Tylenol. And, and Johnson & Johnson, the company that makes Tylenol, was, found itself in a very, very difficult situation. People were dying because somebody had tampered with Tylenol pills. And somebody had put poison in, in Tylenol. This was like around 1982. And the, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson said, look, we're going we're gonna to pull every bottle off store shelves across the country. And in a, in a, in a matter of a week, he did it. You know, uh, it was a tremendous situation where the company was faced with you know, some uncertainty. People were dying and they needed something significant. They needed to, to pull everything off the shelves until they could be certain what was happening, how uh, people were getting sick. Um, and to this day, it's a bit of a mystery. Nobody has ever been charged with that, with the, the, the murders. There was five deaths that occurred as a result of uh, these products being contaminated. But out of this tragedy, Johnson & Johnson created the child-proof cap that we have today, as well as gel-proof uh, gel caps, which make it very, very difficult uh, for someone to tamper with pills on store shelves. So out of a very difficult circumstance came a technological advance that everybody benefits from and that other companies have, have mirrored and copied today. So that's an opportunity or an example of how, you know, from a crisis comes an opportunity. Tell us about the most difficult case that you've been a part of, the case that challenged your professional skill set the most. Ooh. Now you're, now you're really, really, really challenging me. I'm testing uh, you. I can think of a couple of cases and one is actually in litigation right now. Let me think if I can go with one that is not uh, in litigation. Something that's not so, going to get you sued. Yes. You know, this has happened in, in, in more than one circumstance. I'll be the first to admit it. Some clients don't want to listen to you. They think they know better. And CEOs and, and you know, captains of industry and folks who've built a business, and, and sometimes it's a family-run business that is now worth a billion dollars, uh, they didn't get to where they are by, by listening to counselors. Um, and so occasionally we find ourselves with a client 
I can think of a, a manufacturing client. I can think of, you know, a, a sports team. I can think of, you know, a CEO in particular. Uh, different examples where, where they did not want to take our advice and they felt they knew better. And they felt, you know, there was another avenue they could pursue. Sometimes it involved lawyers. Sometimes it involved uh, some type of protest, you know, but those are those are their decisions. And, and we say, you know, we understand your point. Uh, nice to meet you. Goodbye. We, you can't work with somebody who's not going to recognize the facts in front of them and simply want to do what they want to do. That's not somebody we can help. I was going to ask you, do you just ever ditch clients when they're not going to take your advice? But you answered my question. Yeah, I wouldn't say ditch clients. I think it's agree to part. Uh, and, and Richard Levick, the, the, the founder of our company, has said that the client we won't work for is the person who won't take our advice. And I think he's very right. Uh, because ultimately, you know, they're looking at a different path. You've given them good advice based on lots of experience. And if they don't recognize the facts before them, then, you know, it's probably best that they have a different set of counselors. Why do they have you there in the first place? We're, we're brought in, you know, at the request of, of a CEO or an attorney or a board member or their insurance company. You know, lots of folks who realize that it's, a, it's important to have a different perspective at the table. And I think everybody recognizes, you know, with different counselors, you get different perspectives. But sometimes, and it's not every time, I'm wonderful, uh, delighted to say that 99% of the times we get clients who love our advice and end up having very fruitful outcomes as a result. But every once in a while, somebody feels they know better, and it's some, you know it's unfortunate, but it happens. You mentioned your founder's principle was that the client that won't take our advice is the client we won't work with. Is there any other category of client that you won't take on? Are there any sins that are too ethically grave for you not to help with? You know, I don't. I don't really think I've encountered that in in the U.S. Uh, we have a saying: everybody deserves an attorney no matter what their crime. Uh, I think everybody also deserves a counselor such as Levick, uh, you know, no matter what their situation. And, and we're not uh, like attorneys in that we're standing on the steps of the courthouse denying anything happened or denying the facts of a case. Um, you know, at some point, you know, if, if the evidence is overwhelming, you know, our advice is you know, accept responsibility and move forward. Tell your story, tell it early, tell it yourself. Uh, so you can get back to you know, the point where you can reclaim your brand and, and regrow your business or, or reclaim your legacy, whatever that might be. Um, but I have not encountered a situation that I felt was, was an ethical challenge. I'll, I'll share a story. Many years ago, I, I had a young person working for me, and we were representing the restaurant chain Hooters. And if you know anything about Hooters, you can you probably, from your time in the States, we may have visited at Hooters. Uh, <laughs> I don't uh, remember that. Sc scantily clad women in tight orange shorts, uh, and they serve delicious chicken wing. Um, and this young woman uh, said, I have, I have an objection. Uh, I, I, I don't feel comfortable uh, working on this matter. And it was a very interesting case because Hooters hires women to be waitresses. And the matter we were working on in the late 90s, uh, the U.S. government said that's a violation of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That's that's a violation of the law. You can't simply hire exclusively women for these roles. And Hooters said, you know, Hooters could have capitulated. They could have paid a fine. They could have challenged the case. But they said they they took a very unusual tact and they said these are well pay, good paying jobs by waitressing standards. They were better paying jobs than than the average waitress uh, wage. We're employing women. You know, a, a portion of our community that is 
that is underserved and underrepresented in the workforce. Um, the women who work at Hooters are very often the heads of households. They're students going back to school. And who are you, federal government, to tell us who we can hire? Now, the law was against them. The law was on the side of the, the government. You know, you can't simply just hire women to be waitresses. But they, they struck an interesting chord with a number of people and we were able to help them a great deal and ultimately they prevailed. But this young woman said, you know, I object to this. And I made all the arguments that, uh, that the client had made to me. We, you know, for every reason you, you appreciate women, for every reason that you should want to be on the side of this company, you know, it, this is the side that's right. Uh, but, you know, I accepted that she didn't have, she had a moral uh, objection and then we found somebody else to work on the matter. But I guess to answer your question, I haven't found somebody who didn't deserve an advocate in their corner. So I see that your motto is that the best offense is a great offense. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, sometimes uh, clients come to us when they've been punched quite a bit and beaten up by, by critics and the media and bloggers. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a difficult situation for them. And, and we make it okay to punch back. Uh, we tell them it's okay you know, what, what is it you'd like to say to your critics? What is it you'd like to say if you had the microphone right now? And, and when you get them talking, there's, you get a lot of information. And very often, you know, a good communications offensive is just like a good legal offensive. It feels good punching back. And sometimes, uh, you, you know, you're not going to score points if you're hiding in the corner, when, you know, in the fetal position. You've got to get out there and throw some punches and make your case because no one's going to make it for you if you aren't going to make it yourself. Uh, no one's going to inject those facts. No one's going to make those points. No one's going to put that research forth that actually argues your side. And it's very important that we make certain people understand you can go on offense, and, and that's very helpful. What do you know now that you didn't know when you started in this industry 25 years ago? I'm sure there's a lot of things, but what are the biggest lessons that you've learned during that time? You know, you can't pay enough for good attorneys. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think it's so important to have different perspectives at the table uh, and have different perspectives from different levels within a company. I think the, you know, the CEO who only talks to the board is only getting part of the picture. You've got to reach down inside your company and, and make certain you know, other voices are heard uh, and that decisions are made in a holistic fashion. Uh, that said, you know, when it comes time to lead, uh, leaders need to lead. And it's very important to get the facts. It's very important to get lots of perspectives. But once you have information, make a decision. Uh, and be, being decisive, very important. Uh, and have a vision and go for it. And, you know, again, no one cares what got you into trouble. They care what you do from the moment you learned trouble existed. The steps you take, the actions you take, that's how people are going to define your organization, your legacy, and not, you know, the fact that, that something bad happened on your watch. You're a senior vice president in your organization and uh, therefore very much in a position of leadership. You work with a team on all or most of your cases at least. What sort of a leader are you, Jason? Wow, we're getting introspective here. Yes, uh, very much. I'm a very hands-on leader. Uh, I like to uh, bring young people into these very difficult situations so they can first watch and see you know how i assess the situation uh the questions i ask you know a smart person is smart not because they say talk a lot and they say great things because of the questions they ask it's so important 
to be probing with your questions to understand perhaps some of the dynamic going on within a company or an organization. And I, I like to have younger people witness that. And we call it learning by osmosis, but it's actually very valuable. And it's much like a a ride along here, here in the States, you know, if two police officers are paired together, there's an old cop and a young cop. And I find that's extremely valuable. That's how I learned is being paired with somebody who was senior and experienced. And very often, you know, I was uh, a second chair. I was, I was, I, I rode in the passenger seat on a lot of engagements uh, and learned from somebody more senior. You can take classes, you can go through exercises and you can, you can take tests on paper, but nothing's like the real thing. And I, I, you know, advise any organization that's looking to develop their own professionals, make certain those younger people get exposed to, you know, the real work, the real, the real action, because they learn, you know, millennials, uh, you know, young people of all ages, young professionals, very, very smart, very, very, very much sponges. And if you simply have them in the room, you know, they'll learn a great deal. Uh, and they'll be better the next engagement and the next engagement after that, you know, and that goes with writing, that goes with research. Anytime I want to train somebody, I, I let them look over my shoulder as I write a document or as I do some investigation or I, you know, interview somebody, whatever it is, just having them in the room are going to make them better the next time. And that's part of the early grooming for, for how you create that next wave of, uh, of, of staff and counselors and professionals and help. That's how I train the next senior vice presidents. What sort of an atmosphere is it in your workplace? Is it a frenetic go-getter type atmosphere or is there a lot of room for that, those mentor-type relationships that you've just described? How would you, how would you describe the atmosphere where you work? Uh, well, Levick's a global firm and, and uh, we have people all around the world. It's a very frenetic atmosphere uh, and there's probably not as much time for those formal classes I talked about earlier. That's why... The easiest thing is actually to have somebody junior in the room in, in witnessing the live, uh, the live engagement so they see it in real time. You know, it's, it's, it's by design, but it's also what's most convenient. Uh, you know, you, we don't have as much time for, uh, you know, let's say formal mentorship or a, a tutoring or an apprenticeship. I guess today it might be the same for all businesses, but today's apprenticeship is very much on-the-job training. It's a frenetic atmosphere, a frenetic pace. We call it the fast lane because people present in our emergency room with uh, with very serious, uh, life-threatening signs, and we have to go to work as a team and, and go to work seamlessly. So what are you working on personally in terms of your own professional development? How are you getting better? How am I getting better? I am, you know, the wonderful thing about getting older is you learn much more about yourself. You learn, you know, you learn not to eat certain foods. You learn not to, you, need, you learn to get enough sleep. But uh, what I've learned about myself as I get older is that I have a tremendous ability to connect with people. And I have, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell had a book about uh, connectors and mavens and, and people who have, you know, very large circles of contacts. And I'm, I think I, you know, wonderfully um, fostered a great circle of contacts. So one of the things I'm trying to do more is make those, each of those relationships much more real, getting in touch with uh, people in my business circles, my family circles, my professional uh, and, and wider community. We've all got a community we grew up with in school and the, wherever those people have gone are part of that circle. You've got your extended family, you've got your neighborhood friends. You've got, uh, you know, your hobbies and, and interests and so forth. But every one of those are concentric circles around you. 
uh, and knowing them and knowing where they are, knowing what they're doing for a living, knowing their hopes and, and goals and uh, you know aspirations, that's uh, that's been immensely helpful in business because I can connect people. I can find that uh, I can find that dog who's got a fish and that cat who's got a bone and get them together, and you know I've made a wonderful connection. That's very nice, mate. That is very positive and introspective. <laughs> so tell me, mates, uh, where is your career heading? Uh, hmm. Are you going to be well, doing what you do forever? I would like to be doing what I'm doing in terms of counseling people who find themselves in the front page, and I hope to be doing that for many, many years. Uh, you know, I've had uh, I'm entering my tenth year at Levick, and it's uh, it's been a wonderful ride, uh, and I'm excited about the next chapter. And I don't know quite what that. That means, but uh, you know, business is growing, and it's it's fortunately very good. Our reputation is strong in the in the community, and we're doing tremendous things in litigation, and sports, and, and, and data security. Uh, so uh, I expect that business is only going to grow. And you described your work as life in the fast lane. That's stressful and full on. Tell us about your approach to work life balance. You know, I, I don't know that there is much of a work, you know, I think this work-life balance is a bit of a, a myth. You know, you are, I think our work lives today, because of how digitally connected we are, our work lives have spilled over into what used to be our personal time. Uh, I think our families have long ago become accustomed to that weekend call or that, uh, you know, I, we, my family and I take long drives to, to, to see friends and family around the country, and I'm, I'm often in the in the car on the phone. And I just sort of see that as being efficient. You know, I don't, I don't know that there is any work-life balance anymore. Um, it's just sort of part of how uh, our, our world has uh, globally has evolved. There is no, uh, there is no, there's few weekends anymore. There's really kind of just days. Does that sound bleak? I'm sorry. That's awesome. No, th that didn't sound bleak. It just sounded very authentic, mate. That is obviously the way you experience your life. But it, as you said it, did it? Did you start at the end there to think that that sounded bleak? I think it sounds bleak. I think the reality is, uh, you know, I can speak only for how we see things at, at Levick, and Richard Levick is is very accommodating. Uh, you know, I don't the, the things we should all probably think of the things that are no more. You know, like how many of us need to be sitting in a seat somewhere at eight thirty in the morning, you know, uh, ready for work. I think we have flexibility. Uh, a great deal of flexibility in, in work that uh, that we didn't have ten years ago. I think the the connectedness with the, the never-ending uh, you know emails uh, go and understanding you know at least in smart companies that you've got to give people a little bit of downtime. So I you know I don't know that there is a work-life balance. Sometimes it's a work-life imbalance, but I do know you know when I do need to take my kids to the doctor or I need to you know see their show after school. Uh, I make the time, um, and nobody, you know, at my firm seems to have a problem with that. I think it's very enlightened of them because, at the end of the day, we're human beings. It's almost at the point where we need to be at a, an, another level of maturity, and a lot of organisations are another level of maturity after we've realised that our we are so interconnected, and our work obviously spills into our private life. The next level is to allow our private life or our personal life to spill into work time, and realise that. There's a lot of really old, damaging myths about the fact that we need to be at the office at 8 o'clock and leave at 5, and it needs to be Monday to Friday. 
So as long as there's the balance between our work spilling into our private life and our private life spilling into our work time, I, I think it's okay. I, I think it's perfectly fine. And I, and I, and, and I think people have even pulled back the, the veil. Uh, what is, uh, in, 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 do you guys have Black Friday when people, uh, in, 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 this, in, in the U.S., Black Friday is the Friday after Thanksgiving, and everybody in, in America has off on Thursday for Thanksgiving, our, our big festival where we celebrate eating, which is very unlike every other <laughs> American festival. <laughs> every other uh, We don't have every other holiday, holiday. No. But it's the start of the Christmas shopping season, so everybody shops on Friday. Well, Monday is known as Cyber Monday. Following Monday is when everybody goes back to work and during work hours spends their time shopping. So, you know, we, we, we joke a bit, but, you know, I think, I think most businesses understand that uh, when somebody's sitting at their desk, they're not going to be doing work for the full 10 hours of the day or whatever it is. Um, and that's okay, you know, because there's going to be work done late at night. There's going to be work done on the weekends. I mean, we're, you know, I, I consider myself a husband and father uh, before I consider myself a, a crisis counselor. It's just part of the, it's part of the new era we live in. Mate, your, your original answer now seems much less bleak that we've been able to <laughs> talk it through a little bit more and, and give it some breadth. I All was right, starting now. to get sad. I felt like I had to restate it to, to provide more content. <laughs> to avoid that crisis, hey? So uh, as you wouldn't know because you haven't listened to any of my podcasts, I always finish off by asking my guests the same four questions. So they're quick and we're going to get to them now. Tell us about the Saturday night you most look forward to a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Intimate dinner with my closest friends. That was a quick answer. You sure about yeah. that one, hey? I am. Very good. That makes you an introvert. You realize that. Are you comfortable with that? I am comfortable with that. Are you, do you really consider yourself to be an introvert? Uh, you know, I say that and, and everybody I say that to laughs, um, for some reason, but, uh, you know, if I have, if I have a quiet evening, uh, I'm kind of like, you know, I like a quiet evening, you know, with a, with a handful of people, you can have deep conversations. The, uh, the party's nice. I love parties. I, you know, I love parties, but 40, 30 second conversations isn't as satisfying. Either. Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Hmm. Caught daydreaming. All right. Next question. Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? I was daydreaming. Uh, <laughs> Very witty. Def definitely based on emotion. Really? Well, I, I consider emotion your gut too. I think, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta go with your gut and, uh, and you, it's it, it might seem spontaneous, but uh, uh, you know when you get down to the, uh, the the physics of it, I expect it's it's a decision based on small tiny factors that you know you've decided, and and, and it looks like emotion, but it's not. It's really really uh, you know decisions based on your 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 instinct. Last question: You're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route? book your hotels and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? Mate, I, I got in the car and drove five minutes ago. I am gone. I don't, I don't plan anything like that. Excellent. Very clear answers, mate. I, I like that very much. Jason Maloney, you have been such an interesting person to talk to, a great guest. I really appreciate your time.
Thank you, Dave. I appreciate you having me and uh, uh, wish you well. This is a fantastic podcast. There's a man whose services I hope I never need, but it's nice to know they exist. I've always wondered about the type of thinking behind a company's response to a sticky situation, the information they release, the statements they make and the actions they take. Now I know. It's an entire specialised discipline. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website, that's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. If you like the show, jump onto iTunes and give it a rating and a review. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.